an austere glass of water. P.I. Brandybus finds himself in a staring competition with an austere glass of water. The two have been sizing each other up for two months. Each has something the other wants. Brandybus appears rather browbeaten. Sitting in a chair made of rhinoceros skulls, he has four origami swans balanced on each shoulder and a pair of swollen nipples with a cross-hatched sunburn as a result of the 48 hours he spent in a string vest on the beach of Bellicose. P.I. Brandybus produces a set of playing cards from his nose with one of the Joker cards missing. He pats one end to release them from their Auschwitzian capture. The four of clubs immediately cajoles a third of the lower numbers to scamper off to the aquarium. The picture cards decide to moonlight as bookmarks and find themselves inside the signed copies of Salman Rushdie's memoir. The remaining cards piss all over the austere glass of water who remains remarkably austere. P.I. Brandybus raises one interloping eyebrow in a manner which says, This austere glass of water may well prove to be the Moriarty to my Sherlock Holmes. I'd better roll up my sleeves, breathe heavily on my magnifying glass and put my cock back in my dungarees. A lone bead of water dribbles off the glass like the last dying droplet of semen from the sweaty sex organ of an Andalusian elephant. P.I. Brandybus adjusts his tie in a not-too-subtle nod to the detective tropes of Hollywood's film noir. If Humphrey Bogart was here with the super soaker, he'd know what to do, he thought to himself. The austere glass of water remaining steadfast in its austerity thought many things but said absolutely nothing. What brand and size was Michael Caine's leather jacket in his now famous acting lecture from 1987 was just one of the thoughts that kept the austere glass of water distracted from the thought of death. When you whistle, can someone standing close by smell your breath as if you were breathing hard on them was just another thought it had. The Jack of Hearts was by this point regaling anyone that would listen about his stint as a codebreaker in the Second World War. The obvious bigotry and anti-Semitism was enough to make the austere glass of water blush. I'm here inquiring about the whereabouts of Lady Frances Ferdinand. A lipstick stain was found on your person that matches her DNA. The austere glass of water remained stoic and austere. Michael Caine's 1987 leather jacket ringing in its imaginary ears. It suddenly dawned on the austere glass of water it was probably in the 1% of most avid Michael Caine fans currently alive and that what started as the occasional and fleeting thought over a jam sandwich was now an irrepressible fixation that made the austere glass of water feel more and more like John Wilkes Booth. The austere glass of water kept a diary. P.I. Brandybus knew this. Knew this because the glass of water had once upon a time asked for a character reference for a job in the co-op and P.I. Brandybus working as a counterfeit character referee at the time provided one. A chandelier moonlighting as a waiter asked the P.I. and the austere glass of water if they'd like drinks. The P.I. declined, while the austere glass of water asked for a thimble of pineapple juice. The austere glass of water feeling smug about itself was just about to take a sip of the pineapple juice when the P.I. swiped it in his hand made of Cumberland sausage meat and splashed it across one of the vacant pages of the diary. Like a pantomime version of a Harry Potter spell, words suddenly gave birth to themselves from the ejaculate of the pineapple juice. Shocked by this development, the austere glass of water, true to character, continued to maintain its austere veneer. Reading each word at the pace of Stephen Hawking rolling past the village post office, P.I. Brandybus made extra effort to enunciate as he was aware his stammer could mistakenly convey nervousness. Botticelli on my belly with a wet welly. Dad's milkmaid made a croissant full of fire. 
Nabokov could eat Bartholomew and burp him out like a clay pigeon shooting Guy Ritchie. Sourdough bread to feed the 500. Tunnel for the swag, stifle the fox and satiate the squirrel. Bed knobs and broomsticks is Disney's best. The austere glass of water froze and then shattered into 700 million pieces, blinding P.I. Brandybuss in his one working eyeball. Logan's done. 12 contestants, 10 pairs of rollerblades, 48 ninja stars, 12 pink unitards with hand-stinched lightning bolts on the arse cheeks. One heavily lacquered circuit flanked by 14 crossbows, three baths full of human intestines and kidneys, seven judges in leather chaps and herringbone waistcoats. One bouncy castle-sized eight ball named Logan, who makes the final decision on the prize of the winner. This week's climactic episode, concluding a 12-episode run, will surprise the winner with a timeshare villa in Lanzarote, North East Ked, a lifetime supply of working-class breast milk, or £7 million. The show, originally aired on Channel Beta, such was the giddy enthusiasm despite its unsociable running hour of 2am that the makers promptly sold it to Uzo's major broadcaster. Quickly it garnered the reputation as only the fourth show in history to kill more civilians than heart disease. Pitched, jeeringly over a picture of Pims and Peacock Beaks, Danny Gallbladder, a mostly out-of-work writer who had only previously worked on Channel Beta's trashy dating show Blind Bait, was promptly made a millionaire by the show's success. Moved out of his one-bedroom flat in District 9 of Ked and dumped his girlfriend of nine years in her fourth year of psychoanalytic study. Danny Gallbladder bought himself an Aston Martin and routinely received fellatio while driving from script meetings in the early hours of the morning. It was on one such morning, the sky grey like butter, at 3.42am, four seconds after he had orgasmed in his assistant's mouth, that Danny Gallbladder drove into an oncoming van containing 14,000 prosthetic noses and one end of a panto horse. Danny died instantly on impact while his assistant sat in intensive care for three weeks while they removed prosthetic noses which had grafted to her skin. She died from sepsis and clinical embarrassment. She was 24. 52 years of life ahead of her, unlived. Logan's done, ended episode five of season three with a short fade to black and a note written in a Helvetica, size 16 for Danny Gallbladder and size 11 for his assistant, Jenny Bean. Jimmy Callahan, The yellow man from David Lynch's seminal film Blue Velvet, somewhere in the back middle of a tiny theatre for the Q&A of writer Fenwick Scott. The man in yellow is Jimmy Callahan. He has spent the last two decades meticulously countering the claims made by Fenwick Scott in his seminal autobiography, disparaging claims made about the southeast quarter of Ked in the mid to late 50s. Mr Scott is currently on a book tour for a pulpy thriller about a murdered aristocrat. He appears on Channel Beta. You're a liar, Fenwick. All you've done for 32 years is lie. You've done nothing but lie. Now, now, let's at least get a mic to you. Tell us who you are and what's your question. I'm Jimmy Callahan, and I'm here to call out the litany of lies Fenwick Scott has propagated for his entire literary career. Fenwick, you've spent 368 pages lying painting a picture of Southeast Kate that is patently untrue. Oh, be gone with you. What would you know? You weren't even there. 
The events of that book happened before you were a twinkling your daddy's duffel bag. Or event of you twenty-two contemporaries and peers who lived in Southeast Ket at the same time. The early to mid-1950s. Sandra Sacklebury. What about Sandra Sacklebury? What about her? You lied! You didn't sleep with Sandra Sacklebury. She didn't give filet show to a cobbler on Denny Street. I made her up. There is no Sandra Sacklebury. I've interviewed her. Lies. You paint a picture of abject misery. Miserable people. Miserable places. Misery, misery, misery. But what about your time at Glen's Middle School? Where you were a prefect. What about that, eh? You liar. Why did you talk about that in your book? For the same reason I didn't mention any other schools I went to. It's barrened. You owe the people of Kedden an apology. You owe Mary Farnaby an apology. You owe Daphne Grimshaw an apology. You owe Bill Radigley an apology. Lives ruined. Lives they'll never get back. Enough. You've said more than enough. I wrote a book. I wrote a book about my experience. How dare you say I've ruined lives? That's the truth. Find me the truth. You're a lawyer. You're no writer. In the words of the late, great Truman Capote, typing isn't writing. All right, settle down. Now you've made your point. You've made a series of very serious allegations against Mr. Scott. It's only fair Mr. Scott is ascribed the same luxury of time to reply that you've been granted. Mr. Scott. I wouldn't waste any breath. Live your life, Mr. Callahan. Go down to South East Kid and help them cast for the film that's being made from my book. Tell him I sent you. You couldn't pay me. A pack of dirty, dirty, dirty lies. I've had it. Do something with your life, will you? And leave me out of it. You're a fecking lawyer, Fenwick. And a chauvinist. And a scourge. And a scourge. A scourge. Dentist. A curdled custard tart with granulated glass finds itself into the open mouth of a civil servant who happens to ask for the glass to be added after the custard has been curdled. The particular horror of first encountering the bitter, lumpy texture of the custard, soon followed by the sharp cuts on the inside of the mouth administered by the granulated glass, satiated the civil servant this month. Unfortunately, some of the glass found its way into a cavity. No stranger to intense pain, this became a little too much to bear, and so the civil servant finds himself at the dentist, a private dentist, one he's paid a pretty penny for. Should I just look into the light? Yes, please, just straight up into the light, so we can take a quick look at you. So you have a cavity. It looks like you've got an abscess. Hmm, this is weird. Do speak up. I... Well, it's, it's just there's a little man made of pus dancing on your abscess. Uh, 
I'm just going to put Apocalypse Now on TV. It's probably my third favorite. My wife for years would embarrass me at dinner parties whenever I'd say it was my actual favorite. Berated me for virtue signaling. She doesn't do that anymore. Uh, or we could just leave the little fella. He looks pretty content. All right, no need to get shirty. We'll watch Apocalypse Now together and then we'll take the little man out. He looks like he's just getting ready for a nap inside your tooth. Got his little willy out, pissing all over it. Quite funny, really. Janet, could you? Yeah. Now, now, easy. The nurse is just placing the restraints over you while we watch the film. This always makes me think of that scene in The Clockwork Orange where they force Michael McDowell to watch horrific images. Yes, that's what it makes me think of. Yes, I did see the cricket. Awful. The less said, the better. Now, Janet, we may have a bucking bronco on our hands, so just keep an eye, will you? It's what many have since called Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, though, as I'm sure you're aware, the reaction to the film that time could be described as hostile. Francis, in his later years, said, and this is a quote now, this bit, he said, the things you get ridiculed for are the very same things you get awards for later. The reason I mention that is that there's a direct corollary between the uncouth filmmaking practice of Apocalypse Now and the way we function here. Is that your phone, Janet? No? Oh, it's the office phone. If it's my wife, Tana, I can't talk. Apocalypse Now is on. Thanks, Janet. In fact, I think we should clear the rest of the day. Can you order in some large Sicilian pizzas from uh, Pizza Express and chocolate fudge cake and cream? No, you can't do that. And, and why is that? Oh, because we're not real. Of course. Was that obvious to you that the Janet wasn't real? No, it wasn't obvious to me either. Well, there we are. No Siciliana pizzas from Pizza Express and chocolate fudge cake with cream for us. We'll just have to make do with spitting directly into your mouth. That'll have to be it, I'm afraid. Hello, my name's Terry. Hello, Terry. I was sober for most of my life. I couldn't wait to get home off a day on the build and not drink. Came so close to suicide more times than I can count, to be honest. I started drinking three months ago. Today would actually be a three month anniversary. It was a mate who finally said to me, if I wanted to stop feeling so down, I had to try a dribble. It wasn't long, maybe two points. I thought like a different person. Like all the pain and dread I felt was taken off. Like a Labrador waiter taking your shit sodden jacket off at the door. Since then I've started drinking as soon as I wake up and again immediately after that and then again immediately after that and I keep going like that until about 5pm when I have a snooze and then I eat a few kippers and start again. And how do you feel? I feel... well... I don't. I don't feel. Just blank nothingness, a blissful nothingness.
Come up and collect your badge, Terry. Three months inebriated. Well done, Terry. Ramping wifter. Missing. A stagnant pool of water concealed by sharp, brassy chips. A faded Polaroid smeared with wet mud. A father on his Sunday morning run in his Uniqlo athleisure. A loose airport dislodged. A disgruntled father retracing his steps in fizzy drizzle looking for it. Swampy burps interrupt the poetic mysticism of the largest park in the most upper-middle-class arrondissement of Uzo. Arrondissement, 18. Staple to a 200-year-old oak tree, a missing persons poster. Newly printed on A4, a black and white image of a man in Dickensian peasant's clothes, pantomime handlebar moustache, and impoverished stare that suggests malnutrition, dysentery, and cholera. In large black, inkjet Helvetica, the word, missing. Father stops in front of it, his ASICs flecked with mud and his dainty ankles blue, an 0800 number in bold and underlined sits beneath the picture. Adjusting one of his airpods, he takes out his black mirror and skates his finger across it, typing in those 11 digits. This is the missing persons hotline. How can I help? Hello, uh, I'm here to respond to a missing persons notice. What's your name and can you tell me where you are? James Pilbridge and I'm in Bambuk Park. Can you give me the description and the reference number? Yes, well, it's there. It's Charles Dainbridge, born in 1882. Dainbridge, 1992. No, 1882. 1882, yes. Occupation, cobbler, next of kin, Mary Sewell. Yeah, great. Real shame she passed away not long ago. Now I just need that reference number and then you could tell me whereabouts you found him. Yeah, I was jogging through the park and I came across him near the pond. Yeah, you could just give me that reference number first. Oh, oh sorry. Yes, it's HJ47962. Thanks. Carry on. Yeah, so I, I was jogging through the park and I, and I came across him near the pond. Isn't that usually a close at this time of year? Yes. Uh, I just sometimes, I, I, I try to clear my head after a long day. I, I take a little break, you know, from the wife and kids. Yeah. You didn't put your penis in the remains, did you? Good, no. Why would you say that? Often the finders of missing persons are people who have themselves killed said person and performed necrophilia. That's horrible. Takes all sorts, don't it? The vote. Standing outside Uzo's parliament on a rain sodden Tuesday afternoon, a vote has been cast to decide whether Uzo should fulfil its 33-year commitment to financing Ked's healthcare and education system. Many believe the city would entirely collapse without the £7 billion of aid provided. 
reporting from the cold medieval steps, our bright shining star, Sophie Edward Hughes. I've been receiving texts from members of parliament all morning who shall of course remain anonymous. Many in the Lords feel it's no longer their duty to support, in their words, a failing and antagonising rogue state, while a gaggle in the Commons feel it's their moral obligation to support their neighbours. An even smaller faction regard their financial contribution as recompense for decades of occupation and bombing. One member in the Commons chamber, who again shall remain nameless, texts me to say, and I quote, it's looking bad. Another, who shall remain nameless, also said, and I quote, is looking really, really bad, end quote. A text I've just received from a member of the far left of the Commons reads, and I quote, it's really, 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 really bad, end quote. And I'm, I'm just hearing that the vote, the votes come in and it's tight, but the isolationists have it. As of January 2nd, in one month's time, Uzo will withdraw all financial support from KED. This marks a tremulous time for KED as it inevitably holds an emergency parliamentary meeting. Fuck the poor. Ugh. Again. The poor. Yes, call them names. Little street urchins and paupers. Keep going. Lip spittles on benefits, tramps on welfare. Go on. Scallywag weasels, diluted spunk jism, pound shop povos. Dustbin, dustbin, talk about the dustbin. Smelly piss. With a proper title first. Sorry, Prime Minister. Yes, Prime Minister. Families in charity shop clothes, eating Greg's sausage rolls covered in piss, inside all big wheelie bin. That's it, yes. Little chevy mouths sucking McDonald's curry sauce off their dirty sausage fingers with their sovereign rings covered in your cum. The Prime Minister's cum. That's it, that's it. Lumiere Project. 55 seconds. I want to start in a wide. Danny, you make sure none of the lights are in. We might have to use practicals. I want to slowly track in as clouds of smoke billowing in front of the lens. Billowing, is that right? Billow? So the smoke's going to billow and dissipate to reveal an old railroad track that disappears into the horizon. We're shooting black and white 16mm Kodak. So we're moving down this empty railroad track. It feels industrial. It's, it's Lynch's The Elephant Man meets Jarmusch's Dead Man meets Bresson's A Man Escaped. It's all metal and creaking, souped up on the soundtrack, faint flickering sound of light and a choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. And in the distance, at the vanishing point where the railroad track disappears, we see faintly, only, a steam engine. It's gathering speed, more billowing, it's billowing, billowing smoke in the distance. It's gathering speed, it's gathering great speed. And as it's moving from the mid ground into the foreground, we pull back, 
we pull back, we pull back, we pull back, we move back through a screen into a cinema, an old Parisian cinema dating back to 1875. It's smoky, there are top hats and all of that, like late 19th century insignia to convey the time. And now the train looks to be heading straight for us and the crowd roar with horror and rise from their seats, except for two moustached men smoking cigarettes, looking rather delighted with themselves, they clink their glasses and down them. As they do, we freeze frame as a title dissolves up that says, Lumiere Brothers, a big idea needs a little drink. And then the Jack Daniels logo would appear over black. The tiny island of Alcatran has been cited as a possible location for all illegal aliens entering Uzo on its eastern and southern border. I'm here with Home Secretary Kem Jevely Braver, who in a statement earlier today announced plans to build a large prison on its soil, as well as surround the island by 17 feet of barbed wire, while burying 2,000 tonnes of dynamite under its prison in the event it all goes wrong. Listen to this in the morning press conference. Welcome. If you can quickly take a seat. I won't beat around the bush. Misinformation is circulating and I know plans have already been leaked to the media. So let me be very clear. Alcatracken will be the site of our coming initiative to house illegal immigrants as they invade our border. Uzo, as you're all aware, has for too long played host to thousands of illegal immigrants. That day has come to an end. The illegal nature of those migrants will result in them being held in detention centers. And for those intent on breaking the law, our plans to erect the most robust and impenetrable prison will ensure the people of Uzo no longer have to live in fear. And with that, I'll take five questions. Yes. Mark Camel, Uzo Daily. How many immigrants are you expecting to house on Alcatran? Based on the most recent figures published by Kempol, 200,000 cross the sea into Uzo every year. We've chosen Alcatran for its resources and capacity to accommodate this many on a yearly basis. Yes. Sarah Hillcox, Mandrake News. Part of the leak that has come from a reputable source high up in government says, and I quote, they'll take them in for a year. Those they can get on the oil rig, they will. Anyone else will fall victim to an unfortunate explosion less than a year in that will render at least 85% dead and the rest needing medical assistance for the rest of their short lives. Make no mistake, this is an attempt to eradicate the people of Ked and those arriving from far off lands. Can I get your comment on that? Poppycock, poppycock, poppycock. Who's your source? We don't reveal our sources. They wouldn't be our sources for very long if we did. Well, Sarah, if you don't reveal your sources, how can anyone be expected to believe where the information is coming from? For any of us know, you yourself have just made that up. I can assure you this has come from a reputable source within government. As well you know, it is journalistic practice to protect sources. I just find it very peculiar that a publication with a questionable recent history would feel inclined to point the finger at the people of Uzo. David Dimlock. Would you say this new initiative is likely to bring the crime rate down? And if so, how many pickled herrings can one expect to find in their rectal cavity after this? All the data and statistics show crime will fall by a minimum of 22% with an incremental increase to 100% within five years. 
I can say with some authority, pickled herrings will feel safe to reconvene in rectal cavities. Yes, yes, Jen. Do you accept that this initiative is likely to incarcerate thousands of civilians of KED and that as a result, the Heimlich Ted Offensive is likely to launch a series of full-scale attacks which in turn could lead to tens of thousands of murdered Uzo citizens? Scaremongering the public into submission at the hands of these rapists, paedophiles and murderers is something I'm afraid I have to push back on. It's not scaremongering. You've asked me a question, please let me give you an answer. Calling immigrants rapists and paedophiles is... Yes, that is what they are. Uzo's generosity can't be met with evil any longer. We're taking a stand on behalf of the people of Uzo to say enough is enough. If you come across the wall at Ked or you travel by dinghy along the eastern border, we will shoot on sight. And on the event we detain you, immediate extradition to Alcatran will be your fate. I say to all those thinking Uzo is a soft pushover, no longer. We are bursting at the seams. The center will not hold. Your fate, if you choose to ignore what I have said here today, will be sealed. We've been asked to wait at this stop an additional 30 seconds to allow the bomb disposal unit to carry out an investigation into a large black bag that appears to be ticking and on closer inspection has the property of the Heimlich Ted offensive stitched into one of the straps, much like a name tag would be into a school blazer. Please do not be alarmed. Alarm will only result in a stampede. We ask instead that you continue listening to your favourite podcasts, books, or staring into the black window of the train carriage and contemplate the pointlessness of both life and this train announcement. Failing any of that, focus on the growing disdain you have for the drone in my voice. We should be on the move shortly, unless we aren't. If we aren't, it will of course be because we're all dead. Wishing you all a safe journey across Uzo. I've just had word that we will be moving again in 300 seconds. Thank you for your patience. Weekly film review. The next film I'm going to talk about is the Latin American classic Y Tu Mama Tambien, translation and your mother too. Hailing from Mexico and directed by now globally recognised creator of large-scale popcorn spectacle and auto-fiction arthouse autorism, Alfonso Cuaron. The film centres on two friends, Julio and Tanoche, from disparate socio-economical backgrounds. They share a cab one cold Latin American night and find themselves in a conversation with an electrifying cabbie, Luisa. Luisa is saving her money for a kidney transplant that will go awry. Luisa is one of seven sisters who have each married and divorced Ben Stiller. Julio, Tanosh and Luisa decide to abandon their banal lives and drive as far as the 55 pesos worth of petrol will take them. They don't make it very far. A quiet suburb with a disused garage provides the necessary shelter for what becomes a slow reveal of Julio's radioactive penis as it enters Luisa from behind. All the while, Tanosh watches live cricket, which is unusual for him. The credits roll over this scene and it strikes me that it's the perfect allegory for late neocon capitalism. And if it didn't strike me, fortunately I was able to read those very words underlined and wedged between the widely spaced credits. Credits which only listed the names of the three actors and Alfonso Cuaron listed under every role from director to catering. Kamikaze Nights I walk from the bus stop to the bar. I was wearing an oversized beige blazer I bought in a giant shopping centre I used to go to as a boy when I was still a boy and not a boy in a man's body. 
I was early for the date, but no early than I usually am. I like to arrive 45 minutes before the arranged time. It gives me an opportunity to buy two packets of airwaves, drink a beer to myself, and remove my boxes after an inevitable shot on the way there. I imagine I'm someone who knows how to operate their limbs, but trying to convince myself of this doesn't always work. I can't stop thinking about Jonathan Glazer's film Under the Skin and its alien POV. A POV that feels at once alien and so familiar, I think to myself, I'll share this thought with my date. He'll act as a slightly peculiar icebreaker that should convey I'm a thinking man with a taste for critically lauded but commercially abysmal art house sci-fi. I take my phone out of my mouth where I keep it and open up Minge, my dating app of choice. I scroll to her profile, my date, remind myself of what she looks like, feel a slight pulse in my pants. I think to myself, it's a shame her name is Pauline. I could never be with a Pauline. From this evening, I just like some extended eye contact and exposed teeth, and ideally a feral and thirsty quick fuck over the arm of a sofa before bed. I don't want to share my bed either. I hope she suggests hers. Probably will, if it goes that way. Cramping my toes. Need to remove the Marmite crumpets I keep between them. Shaved my Adam's apple off this morning, wearing it on a necklace with three shark teeth. Dating is just talking to myself out loud and smiling more than I usually would alone. Olfactory. I take a similar enjoyment to smells as the murderous perfumer in the book Perfume. I remove my blazer and drape it gracefully over the chair beside me, thinking about Humphrey Bogart as I do it. My chain link of condoms falls from the pocket but thankfully face down. Face up they are a particularly garish luminous green. Face down they are silver. Face down they still occupy the shape of a condom but I feel a little more at ease. I quickly scoop them up thinking again about Humphrey Bogart and how he might retrieve a chain link of condoms from the sticky floor of a brightly lit bar. I look down at my phone, not at anything, but as a way to conceal my mild embarrassment and instead replace it with a look of intrigue, the kind of intrigue you might expect to see on someone's face if they had just witnessed a seven-humped camel mating with a human. I put my phone back in my pocket and stare at the barmaid, disassociating. Not in a lecherous way, at least, that's what I think until a woman waiting to be served who happens to be looking in my direction sees me and nudges the barmaid to tell her I'm looking at her in a lecherous way. I wasn't close enough to hear her say it, but I learned to lip read while watching Thunderbirds as a kid. I wasn't allowed to have the sound up. My dad would fill the bath with kettles of boiling water and tell me to swim amongst them while he held a portable TV with Thunderbirds on it. I bruised very easily. Swimming amongst twelve kettles isn't as easy as it sounds. Occasionally I'd taste the lime scan in the water and want to be sick, but I couldn't because I had to write a synopsis of that morning's episode of Thunderbirds for my dad, who had a job at the time as a Thunderbird synopsizer. My dad told me it was important I learned to empathise with the deaf, and that's why I wasn't allowed to hear anything from the show. When it had become obvious that I was able to accurately synopsize an episode without the need of a sound, my dad told me he never actually had a job as a Thunderbird synopsizer. He was, in fact, claiming benefits and wanted to teach me the ways of the world. My next lesson was a little more irreversible. Having learnt in some small way how the deaf coped, my dad wanted me to understand what it is to be blind. One evening while I was relaxing in a treehouse made from the bones of my ancestors, my dad poked his head through the hole in the bottom of it. He had a gleeful smile on his face and in his hand he was holding a bottle of bleach. He told me to hold my eyes open like Michael McDowell in A Clockwork Orange and he would squeeze the bottle of bleach into them. So I did that and it burnt quite a lot. My eyes felt raw for weeks after this. I still had partial vision in my left eye, so my dad took a glass from the kitchen cabinet, placed it inside a large handkerchief and stamped on it, 
Once it had been broken up into small pieces, he used a hammer to make those pieces even smaller and continued in this way until a small amount of glass powder had formed. He took the powder and using a plastic funnel, again told me to keep my eye open while he funneled it onto my eyeball. This worked. After that, I no longer had vision in my eyes. Mr. Wiggles. Jimmy Stewart wet the bed on Thursday. Little Jimmy couldn't hold it in. It's Mr. Wiggles' job to attend to all of the boys' bunks at 5am each day to check whether any of the boys have wet the bed. Mr. Wiggles would use his personally trained sniffer dog to assess whether any of the boys had wet the bed. His beloved cockapoo Wilfred, able to detect a micromilliliter of urine on an otherwise spotless mattress, died of natural causes at the age of 13. Without the sufficient time or inclination to train another dog, Mr. Wiggles became the detector. He would assume an all-fours canine posture and sniff around the beds and then around the crutch of each of the boys. In the event he smelled any urine, they would be sent straight to the infirmary, where the matron would force-feed them a family-sized tub of mustard ice cream and spank them. Substitute for love. I listen to Madonna's Substitute for Love 376 times a day. I'm a fan of the Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai, in particular his films Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. In the former, the lead character, a wistful and melancholic young man, collects tins of pineapple marked with the 1st of May, the day his beloved broke up with him. Listening to Madonna's Substitute for Love makes me feel a delicious and warm Wong Kai Wai yearn. Listening to her lilting voice, I sit in my chair in my room and turn my lamp on and I burn some Paolo Santo and I think about how good my life once was. Not all that long ago. And how while I was in it I complained and I moaned and I belly ached. The gifts of that love were lost on me. I walked around with my eyes firmly closed to the beauty of the relationship I was in. Sometimes I light tea lights from Mark Spencer and I pull my hood up over my face and pretend I'm a big nothing. Usually Madonna saves me in those moments with her humming at the end of the song. It glides into the words, the face of you, the substitute for love. And at once I'm again reminded of Wong Kar Wai, that particular fizzy technicolor yearn he encapsulates. And just as the song reaches its end for the 376th time, I relight a stick of Paolo Santo and press it abruptly against one nipple. I alternate nipples, and for those four seconds of pain, I realise I'm alive. And I better get back to work so that I can pay my rent and listen to Madonna sing Substitute for Love again tomorrow morning. My nipples look like someone dragged the smudge tool on Photoshop through pink wax. I take Polaroids of them, date them with a Sharpie, and send them to my ex. I don't know if she knows they're from me. She wouldn't recognise my nipples now, not anymore. Even if she had a photographic memory for nipples, mine are so obviously disfigured from what they were, she can't possibly know that they're from me. Sometimes I hope that she does. Sometimes I hope that there's a banging at the door and the police come to get me, take me to an interrogation room and interrogate me about the nipple Polaroids. When they don't get the answers they want, they pee all over me until my nipples tingle from the nitrate in the urine reacting with the healing sores. They chuckle while they do it and remind me that if capitalism had a face there'd be two large penises instead of eye holes. I think this is an unsettling image for them to have fucked into my mind but fortunately most of my focus is on the burning sensation in my nipples 
as it feels more and more like sulfuric acid is eating into my flesh. And I think of Madonna and substitute for love and try to reassure myself that it'll all be alright when I can get home and play Madonna's substitute for love. Affordable big tech homes. I'm Sophie Edward-Hughes reporting for Scat News. So I suppose the idea is for those who can't afford to get on the property ladder to get on the property ladder with a home designed by Google. Yes, we're committed to working with the government to ensure 70,000 new homes that will be built in the 23rd Hollandaisemont. The government have yet to acknowledge that the shortfall in housing over the last 20 years has led to this point, the point at which it's become a housing crisis. We're committed to ensuring the 70,000 houses being built address this shortfall in a way that retains the beauty of the 23rd arrondissement while addressing a society deeply in need. And if I might, the government have been steadfast in their execution and support of this project. Many have speculated that the PM has a job lined up at Google when he's inevitably axed from office and that this contract with Google cements his place as a high-ranking executive at Google when he leaves. Listen. I can't possibly comment on the whispers and hearsay heard in the corridors of Parliament. What I can say is that the Prime Minister has acknowledged more housing is needed and as such has partnered with us to ensure the needs of a young, professional, Uzo population previously edged out of an out-of-control housing market are catered to. And I'm hearing in my ear we've been provided with the contracts. Bear with me. One of our legal analysts has only just finished pouring over them. I'm hearing there's a few clauses I'd like to address while you're here. OK. So on page 17, clause 9, it says, in the event an occupant dies within 22 years of leasing the accommodation, their organs become property of Gogol. Is that, is that right? That's not legalese language for something else. That's human organs. That's correct, yes. And on page 49, clause 228, occupants will be required to reveal their genitals every third Thursday of the month to a team of Google experts. I mean, so many questions. I'll start with why every third Thursday? An executive meeting is held every third Friday in which the material would be reviewed. And so these images pictures, I presume, of each occupant's genitals just as they are? Pretty much. Pictures or a high-resolution video. Videos often act as a better age for those meetings, but it's for the occupants themselves to decide. And why genitals? Part of the agreement that's been made with the government is that 70% of the startup costs will be provided by Google. The board felt an appropriate recompense for the financial risk-taking would be a viewing of each occupant's genitals. I see. And given the contract is in its final stages, that's unlikely to change, even with a potential public backlash. Sophie, I think it's important to understand we have been tasked with supplying more homes to build in a 12-month period than has been seen since the Industrial Revolution. And I can assure you those homes did not come equipped with indoor lavatories and IKEA furniture. For those occupants lucky enough to benefit from this scheme, a little bit, a morsel, a tendril of shame every third Thursday is required. Does that seem unreasonable to you? It's not for me to say. I'm here to ask you the questions. And just lastly, I know we're almost out of time, page 206, clause 13, and I quote, 
occupants are required to use a Google card in order to use the local supermarkets, retailers and outlets. Can you explain what exactly that is? Is it a voucher? Is it a credit card? Of course. So alongside the construction of these 70,000 homes, we're generating the entire infrastructure and amenities that a community requires to survive and thrive. Those include a Google supermarket, a Google retail, Google pharmacy, Google bookshop, etc. And it makes sense as part of that evolution to use one universal card that allows payment across all of the platforms. It works just like a debit card. The additional feature we've included takes into account the virtues that we've come to regard as so important to a healthy, well-functioning society. And what are those? Punctuality and obedience. And how will this card track these qualities? Your place of employment will track your punctuality and compliance at work while you carry out your day-to-day -day tasks. So it'll just be at work? No, you'll accrue a score between 1 and 100 from your employer, dentist, grocer, gynaecologist, parking attendant, babysitter. Seems entirely reasonable. He was the best husband I could ever have imagined. He told me he didn't mind the fact I couldn't have children. Third generation, three per years were the last ones born without a uterus. He really wanted children, but he couldn't afford one of the new models. Not after he bought me. No one expected the breakthrough in childbearing to happen so quickly. I don't mind what he beat me. I can turn off my GVNC so I don't feel anything. I can't stop the bruises from forming or the cuts from scarring, but I don't feel it. When it got bad that last summer, I even deleted some of those memories. He wasn't a bad man. He just had a lot of anger in him. And it's not like it was illegal. Androids don't have the same rights, so of course it's perfectly acceptable for a person to beat an android. These days there are androids built specifically for that purpose. So if you do only lasting damage to a GVEK, then these days it's sort of looked down upon. And that has been a major shift I've noticed in the last 25 years. In the early days, I used to hold destruction derbies with 50, 60 cars, all driven by JBEKs. No, these kamikaze droids have made a real difference. Do you think it's created a safer place for everyone or just for you? It's definitely safer for me. For other droids, you'd have to ask them, really. Obviously, it's not safer for kamikaze droids, but as we now live in a world of approximately 30 different models and makes of Android, do you think it's created a class system? No, I don't know, really. For example, are there places you can't go that you know other androids can and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, that's always been the way. I can go to any of the bars on Bleecker Street, but I can't go into the ones on Berwick Street, which joins Bleecker onto Bletham Street. Bletham Street is the same. I can't go into any of the shops or bars there either. So I suppose you could say there's a difference. And if you were asked to indecently expose yourself in order to gain entry into one of these establishments, would you? What do you mean by indecent? Expose a portion of your body that secretes fluid. Yeah, I suppose I'd do that to get into Randy's on Berwick Street. They do karaoke. I like karaoke. And if you could become karaoke in exchange for the insertion of an aubergine in your rectum, is that something you'd consider? How long would it be in there? Twelve minutes. Yes, suppose I would. 
And if that aubergine was smothered in Encona hot pepper sauce and had already been inside the rectal cavity of deceased film critic Barry Norman, would you then? Would it have been inside the rectal cavity of Barry Norman while he was still alive or when he was dead? When he was still alive? Then yes, I, I would. And what if it was after he had died? Mm. Yeah, I, I would. Coldplay with a K have announced a portion of the proceeds from their new album Come Together will be donated to AIDS charity Saved. Frontman Chris Marvin is also auctioning off the original lyrics to five of the album's songs, including Christmas hit AIDS Is You, I Am AIDS. The lyrics have been written on papyrus using a quill owned by Chris's great-great-grandfather and slave owner Henry Marlowe. The lyrics have been written in the HIV-infected blood of Mark Raggett, winner of this year's Hero of Ked Award. Just a week after Coldplay with a K presented Mark with the idea, he sadly passed away. His family kindly supplied the band with seven litres of Mark's blood. Mark's corpse and organs can be seen at the final show in the O2 Arena, where it is rumoured that in loving memory of Mark, Chris will be wearing his skin like a suit for the last song, In My Skin. Please be aware CCTV is in operation at this station. Please be aware plainclothes transport police are also in operation at this station. Please be aware pressing comes with a minimum fine of £3,000 and a criminal conviction. Please be aware pressing includes contact between the fabric of your jacket against any of the erogenous zones of a neighbouring body. Please be aware pressing also includes the metaphorical pressing of eyes on the body of another occupant of the train carriage. Pressing also includes thoughts of a pressing nature. These include imagining you're pressing yourself into another person, imagining someone else is pressing themselves into another person, imagining the word pressing written in lifelike human limbs pressing up against each other, imagining another person with a body that could be pressed, imagining the train carriage as it is a fertile ground for your depraved pressing. Any thoughts or actions that purport to the above will incur a minimum fine of £3,000 and a criminal conviction. Help us stamp out pressing. If you spot someone pressing, or someone who looks like they're thinking about pressing, or someone who looks like at some point in their lives they're pressed or thought about pressing, or someone who looks to be peer pressuring someone into pressing, either physically, mentally or psychically, contact us immediately on 0800 243 243. Together we will live in a pressing free world. At Pure Cremation, we offer you the opportunity to get your affairs in order without being a burden to your family. This is a delicious coffee. I've just signed up to Pure. What's Pure, Mum? Pure Cremation. They get an immediate notification as soon as my phone is inactive for more than three days. They'll arrange for my body to be taken from my home and deposited at one of their certified crematoriums where I'll be cremated and delivered back to you in one of 15 different types of urn, and with no additional expense. Wow, and there's really no extra expense? None. All that's left to do is... die. (laughs) 
As I sit here before you, I am afraid to declare we now find ourselves in a necessary but regrettable position. The Ted Heimlich Offensive have published videos revealing themselves to be responsible for the bombings that have taken place in the last few days across the 14th, 23rd and 88 arrondissements. We will not sit idly by as our people are brutally murdered. We will not stop until we have found those responsible. Generous people of Uzo, I am declaring a state of national emergency. KED have revealed themselves to be a brutal and merciless enemy. That will change. Under my stewardship, this Leviathan will be vanquished. Today we turn a painful but necessary corner. There are times for peace and there are times for war. History will look upon us fondly as the children of love, kindness and prosperity. Today, I declare we are at war with KED. War with KED.